Welcome to the Content Pros Podcast, where we unlock the strategies and secrets of the best content marketers in the world and ask the questions you've always wanted asked. Content Pros is sponsored by predictive content analytics software, Inbound Writer, and online proofing and collaboration platform, Proof HQ. Now here are your hosts, from Oracle Marketing Cloud, Chris Moody, and from Sysimos, Amber Nasland. Ready? Let's talk to the pros. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number five of Content Pros. We're really excited to have you again today. Thanks for joining the show. And we have Carlos Abler from 3M today. So, Amber, I'd love for you to get the discussion started. We're really pumped to have him here. Absolutely. I'm totally excited. Welcome aboard, Carlos. Carlos is um, the head of content marketing strategy over at 3M. And I think what he's doing is incredibly cool because, Carlos, you come from an interesting background of user experience and interactive design, which seems to have parlayed itself into content strategy. So tell us a little bit about how you got here and what you do over at 3M. Sure. Um, Yeah, so there are a number of funky inputs into what I do, which I think is probably pretty common for a lot of people uh, in the world of content and user experience and, you know, creative strategic things in the web. You know, a lot of us have diverse funky backgrounds and, and, um, so I've got a few things flowing into mine, um, that led into uh, a focus on web strategy and user experience uh, a, a bit earlier in my career. That's how it crystallized. But, um, my background was a lot focused on human sciences and behavior and, and various things like, you know, anthropology and history of religions and psychology and so lots of human stuff, understanding how humans work, how they make sense of the world, how they experience things. Um, and also theater and performance and spectacle. Um, you know, I started puppet theaters. I uh, did animation. I built multimedia installations. I did physical theater. Um, um, you know, just all sorts of things related to performance and direction and, and basically creating experiences for people that, you know, are more of a, a artistic, narrative, theatrical kind of uh, kind of thing. And then um, those two things came together in the late 90s when I uh, started doing uh, some content-related things for, for museums and whatnot. But I um, was on my way to – my intent was to uh, produce large-scale multimedia theater spectacles and feature-length films. And around 2000, I started studying flash animation, basically just as an expedient means of creating animations to communicate – uh, these large and expensive things that I wanted to do and kind of like basically creating movie trailers of visions that were in my head, so to speak, as a means of getting buy-in and um, learning all these digital skills. So there was picking up, you know, all these uh, um, digital skills like sound design and, and uh, um, Photoshop and Illustrator and, and HTML. And I just, I just kind of started exploring into the space and, and found uh creatively sort of from an artistic and expressive and whatever perspective that there was, it was just basically a, a, like a kid in a candy store sort of situation. And um, so I started making websites for people. This is in the early 2000s. And then I had a huge opportunity in 2004 uh, to work on a project for the Smithsonian Institute um, called uh, Winter Count. It was a Native American exhibit focused thing. And, um, and, what was interesting is that that project, in that project, I was able to tie together all of these different skills. 
basically experience design and uh, multimedia production and um, strategies, all the sort of stuff sort of came together. And I had kind of a big realization there that, wow, for, you know, uh, $75,000 for, you know, a project for someone like History Channel, um, I can exercise a lot of the, the sensibilities and creative skill sets that cost $75 million to do in a feature-length film. And it's a lot easier uh, to get a $75,000 project than it is to get a $75 million project. So um, I started just kind of going crazy in the space of, uh, you know, of digital, largely focused, you know, with museums and, you know, people like Smithsonian and History Channel and whatnot, and creating super deep content uh, websites, like, you know, interactive graphic novels that link to primary historical resources and interviews and, and all that kind of thing. So it was kind of a, a, a media um, a thing, I guess. And so around then, I, I really, you know, in the 2000s, I really went deep on, on business and web strategy and, uh, and user experience. I figured that interaction design and user experience was a, a key thing to focus on um, because that's really the product, really understanding how to shape the product in a way that was going to optimize experience and outcomes and, and all of that sort of thing. So the center of gravity was really kind of a combination of a, a content and strategy and interaction design all at once. So for a number of years, I, I led, ran, participated in all sorts of projects for all kinds of companies um, and then um, had my own um, boutique for a while, was in agencies, um, freelance, etc. And I did some projects for 3M around 2010 as a contractor, and uh, and 3M was like many large organizations trying to ascend the uh, the learning curve of digital and the the learning curve really becoming customer centric, which for a lot of obvious reasons for people in the space are things that are um, go hand in hand. And essentially, they just they offered me an opportunity to become a content czar in the organization, which was a hugely attractive opportunity because 3M is a $30 billion company that's got, you know, tens of thousands of products and is in every vertical there is. So if you think about the opportunity there from a, a, a cross-vertical, um, customer-focused perspective, it it's, was really quite an incredible thing. And, um, and a great opportunity basically to help evolve the culture. So I figured, okay, I've had all these years, you know, doing really amazing content projects and, and, and whatnot. So how, how does one go about helping, you know, a marketing, a global marketing community of 7,000 people plus all the other customer facing functions like sales and customer care and public relations and all that? How do you help an organization function better cross functionally? Um, aligned to the customer journey um, with content. It was it was just a, a really enticing sort of quixotic, you know, kind of <laughs> kind of challenge uh, to do that. So I uh, um, came into 3M and created a program called Content to Customer. Um, it's a it's a framework of of processes and tools. It's basically a, a toolkit that um, for the last few years I've been working with various areas of the organization to try to help them achieve content excellence. And it focuses on technology, on process, um, and strategy. And one of the ways that I kind of spin it, the way, the way I classify it, is strategy as a service. 
So if you think about like how technology companies nowadays are coming up with these, you know, kind of service organizations that sometimes they'll call things like customer success programs or that sort of thing. So, you know, you're not just throwing technology at people, but you're helping people how to apply those technologies in a more strategic manner. Um, that's, I, I kind of classify that sort of thing as a, as a strategic service. And that's really what this is. So I help, uh, the, it, it really, it helps all levels of the organization. I work with, um, executives and business leadership to understand what kind of technologies or processes or roles they should be invested, invested in. The framework supports that. The C2C framework also uh, supports business services organizations and understanding how do we better serve the organization, um, you know, uh, doing content and whatnot because business services plays a lot of roles in, in, in helping the organization that way. And then directly with, uh, you know, Marcoms and marketing and sales and the customer-facing folks who are trying to figure out how to do uh, things in a more optimized way that can be supported by content. Um, so it, it, it helps all those different um, levels of the organization and primarily focuses on, on workshops and that sort of thing. So that's, that's what I've been doing over the last few years is, is basically taking a, a framework that helps accelerate um, content excellence across all levels of the organization. That's awesome. And How's I think that? the, the, that's great. <laughs> the broad experience set that you have, that's what I was going to ask about next because you hinted at it. I mean, 3M is a massive company, 30 plus billion dollars, tens of thousands of products. But how do you apply a content strategy framework for customer success across all of those lines of business and all of those products? I mean, how do you stretch yourself and your team to make sure that each individual product is aligning to a specific customer? Um, well, it's, it's, it's complicated, my friend. Um, <laughs> uh, what, one thing that I've learned is that, um, helping content cultures move forward in, you know, if I, if I take what you're saying as, as really an outcome of a, a culture that can produce that, um, it's, it's, the reason why it's complex is because it, I often liken it to a game of Go versus chess. So I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar with the game of Go. It's a, a Chinese game where you have black and white stones and, and a very giant grid, and you basically place stones kind of all over the place, and eventually you try to surround your enemy. And it's a little different than maybe like chess where you kind of go in one direction and try to capture the king. Um, and uh, cultural transformation around content is similar to that because – Content is the, the the blood that flows through all organs, you know, of the company. It's it 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 flows through every single touch point that exists really between a customer and an organization, and and all the various functions and 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 products and applications and all these things all interface. You know, uh, uh, content interf- is is an interface at all those touch points and across all those things. So it's. There, it's not a real simple solution because you you need to help um, you know people like marketing and sales and customer care uh, work better together to understand how, you know anchor themselves around managing the customer experience in a way that's strategic in order to sort of thread the needle of that content in a way that's coherent, if you will. So a big part, a big input to getting that right is around cross-functional training and workshops. So. You know, for example, we um, will do things where we uh, do research and compile information related to things like what are the key goals and pain points of the customer. Um, and there are, uh, 
there are product-focused goals and pain points, and then there are adjacencies, like ne sort of near-term adjacencies to, if you think about product as kind of ground zero, and let's call that, you know, as far as needs and goals that the product serves, that would be like a level one need. There's a, there's a, or a tier one need, what I call it. There's a tier two need, which is a little bit adjacent to that, which is how do I apply this product? What is this, what, what are ways that I use it? Needs might be, so if you take like a dentist, for example, you know, we make all these adhesives and, and, and um, abrasives and things for the dentist. So you've got your needs and goals and the way that content serves that, that specifically relates to that product. And that's your classic product features and benefits and whatnot. And then you have, how do I apply this product? What are, what are techniques that I use as a dentist? And that's a, you know, there we may be providing content that helps address technique and application or the same thing with it like an in engineer and whatnot, right? And then tier three might be, well, you know, how do I operate my business? How do I become a better dentist as a whole? How do I get my accounts receivable down and train my staff and communicate better with patients so that there's more compliance and all of that sort of thing? So you have these various tiers of need. And so what we work with is to really map the horizon of those needs and goals and really try to understand the customer as much as possible. And to do that cross-functionally as a group, because those needs can and will be met in some way or another by content and in a way that drives action across all stages of the customer life cycle and potentially across all moments of the customer decision journey related to transactional behaviors. And so we, we understand all those things. We try to understand, you know, what tasks people uh, uh, are doing as a means of dealing with those needs and goals, their information-seeking tasks, their utilitarian kinds of tasks or you know, who do they communicate and reach out to to understand more or discuss things related to these things. We try to map all that stuff out and, and come to a common understanding among these cross-functional roles I was talking about. So, you know, your marketing, Marcom, sales, uh, customer care, et cetera. And then we have a way of taking that information and we have a, a, a deliverable or a, a tool that I call the, the ideation guide. And that guide basically takes that strategic input information and it turns it into a visualized kind of, uh, we use basically use visual storytelling or, or information design in this guide in a way that helps people with very specific exercises to uh, come up with solutions that align to both the, the needs of those functional organizations insofar as they interact with the customer and then of course the needs and goals of the customer. Then we map there are a series of exercises that they do together um, where they uh, work in and around customer journey and life cycles. There's a, like a series of about seven exercises, um, six or seven exercises that, that build on one another in the workshops. And by the time they go through all this, these teams are able to basically disappear into a room and for 90 minutes and answer seven questions and then come out of that room with uh, content strategies, at least straw man, you know, campaigns or, or initiatives that um, that align everyone's interests and needs. So that's that's kind of how we go about it. It's about gathering all that strategic input that will create relevant content aligned to customers' needs and goals. That will come up with a way that is coherently mapped to whether it's product promotion or these, you know, need goal adjacencies that may be non-promotional or non-product oriented and that um, extend themselves into how 
uh, customer testmates are managed through all those various stages and the way that all of these, you know, various functional roles intersect through that. That's, that's kind of how we do it. It really is a cultural thing. If you don't, my, one of my big opinions is that if you, one of my dogmas is that if you don't get cross-functional teams structurally and in kind of a gamified way, building things together that create long-term enduring programs and processes and that have a meta level of reflection on how it is they function in an organization and what now the implications are for these plans for how they need to do processes differently or new roles, that type of thing. If you don't do that kind of um, really heavy detailed work together, the, the change will never happen fast enough. Folks, I hope you are taking notes on all of this kind of stuff because I know I am. So I want to I take a quick second before we continue the conversation to um, shout out to one of our sponsors who makes Content Pros possible, which is Inbound Writer. Um, most content fails to drive much, if any, traffic to your site. So wouldn't it be great to know how good or bad your content will perform before you write it? Inbound Writer does that. They forecast how your content will perform based on real-time analysis of your site, your competition, and search engine behaviors. Inbound Writer tells you which topics will work, which won't, and why, removing the guesswork from content creation, increasing traffic, and decreasing wasted time. Visit inboundwriter.com to learn more. Carlos, I love what you were talking about with this culture of content. You talked a lot about bringing together these cross-functional teams um, for a purpose, but I want to talk about the, the not-so-pretty side of that, which is, the, the shift that, that culture is going through in organizations all over the world right now is a rather radical one. So when you meet pockets of resistance or skepticism, um, what are some of your tried and true ways to approach that conversation to gain buy-in for this approach when it's not as familiar to some people? Uh, and how do you bridge that culture divide? Yeah, so, um, well, you know, charisma. And, and persuasion. No, just kidding. Um, so, well, it kind of depends on who in the organization you're trying to transform, whether you're trying to transform, um, you know, leadership or are you, are you trying to transform practitioners, you know, the people who are actually doing it. Um, and I'll focus on the doing it people right now. Um, because, you know, much like the adoption curve of uh, new technology or whatever, you know, you kind of have your classic sort of early adopters and early followers and laggards and people who will never come along and, and that type of thing. You know, it's the same thing with um, culture transformation related to content, related to, you know, uh, getting into the digital space in general and really ultimately becoming more customer centric. So, so you have that spectrum. And there are a lot of ways to, you know, to address that. One of the ways that I do is to be transparent about it upfront and to call it out. Um, I just did this the other day. I had one of our uh, global divisions and we had a, 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 a all day long, you know, workshop on, um, you know, how are we going to move forward with the roadmap of constant maturity for the next, for the next three years. And, and in there, you know, I, 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 I talk about it upfront um, that, you know, that this is, this can be really challenging to do, that different people are going to react to this differently, and that's okay. So one thing to do is be transparent, to say, look, there's going to be some people who really are excited to move forward on this, and, you know, maybe even they're kind of all ready to go on it. There's going to be some people who are going to kind of more wait and see what other people are doing, you know, how's it going, what is this, I don't, 
necessarily have my head around it yet. And, and sometimes those people, they just need six weeks, you know, or a couple of weeks and just a little bit more time to reflect on how it fits in. And then they get in the right mindset and then they end up being really strong allies, you know, and then there's the people who are more resistant and then there's the people who are never going to come. And, and, and I say, it's okay uh, to be all of those things. What we need to do together is to understand um you know, where our champions are and where are the people who are, are really going to lead and really kind of focus on them and start to align those folks who are ready to charge ahead with the near-term high-value opportunities and with the people and, you know, the folks who are going to help shape up what the vision is that's going uh, to bring everyone else along. So that's, that's a fairly common thing, right? You know, pilot it with the people who are ready to go. The internal pilots are really key. Um, you know, it's good to, to balance that with what people are doing outside. You know, another thing, too, is I bring in information about what's going on in the outside world. You know, I bring in a lot of references to what other people are doing, try to tie that to, you know, um, specifically within their industry or their competitors. So I'll use uh, competitor examples, um, you know, people who are being successful. And, you know, now is a good time because there's there are more examples everywhere of people doing uh, content marketing well that you can point to. And so you can basically kind of scare people a little bit with uh, uh, competitive uh, kinds of things. I'll also refer to, you know, benchmark studies and that sort of thing, um, you know, that are showing uh, adoption. I'll refer to, you know, CMIs in our, you know, last week I referred to the, you know, B2B, um, um, B2B report that they put out on what people are doing with content and show things like the average amount of uh, initiatives that other people have going on, and, I'll, and and then I'll ask questions back to people to reflect on, you know, how does this position where you're at today, and that type of thing. So it's a combination of those kinds of things that, that help to bring. But I do really believe that the more that you can talk about the resistance and the fears up front, and make it transparent and, and make it laughable, make it something that people can kind of laugh at and feel comfortable with, then it makes it less. Of a, of a kind of real fear-based thing where it's like, look, <clears throat> either you're going to, you know, do this and you're going to be awesome at it and, and we're going to, you know, punish the people who don't or there's this atmosphere of punishment and fear. Um, you know, I try to make it really as positive as possible. And we'll find, one last note on that is that, and this was very, very interesting, um, with another one of our divisions, we had a, a marketer who really didn't want to, was very resistant to, um, uh, getting deep into content marketing and that type of thing. And they just, they didn't like it and they didn't, you know, kind of get it at first. It was just in there. And, and the, a lot of it came down to the fact that they're just very busy. You know, people are overloaded with, with work and now you're throwing this whole new, you know, universe at them and it's scary and it's freaky and they're basically just stressed out. You know, it just comes down to the fact that they're overwhelmed and stressed out. And anyway, so, uh, so this particular gentleman, went through kind of a whole 180 transformation after a period of, of a couple of weeks. We, you know, he got really turned around on it and, and really ended up loving it and having a lot of success with it. And so when we did a, a three day workshop, we had 45 people in a hotel for three days. It was a really big thing we did with that uh, U S division. And he came out, he opened, was one of the people who kicked off the event and he talked about his transformation. He talked about, how scary and freaky it was at first. And then and he gave some details around, um, you know, how it became more attractive to him and how it was that he started to get it a little bit more. 
and that sort of thing. And that was actually having a, a person who sort of went through that transition to help address people who were entering into that space of fear was actually a really very, very powerful thing and really helped to make it feel like, hey, it's, it's okay. Don't feel ashamed that it's overwhelming. It's just going to take some time. And, and I guess one more detail I'd add is to, you know, the organization needs to manage its expectations and say that, look, as leadership in a company who's expecting our culture to adapt these new imperatives in marketing and customer relations, we also understand that we have a responsibility as organizational leaders to give people some time to get it right to invest in getting it right, to give them training, to provide them with the tools, to provide them with outside assistance that they need and that sort of thing. Because what's really best in, in, in getting the stuff to take off is if you impose scary new stuff on people and don't be forced them to handle it. You just and, and then you basically just leave them there not really knowing what to do and fighting their way through it. And that's that's really not a recipe for success. Some awesome stuff there, Carlos. And you hit on a lot of things I want to talk about, but I'm going to zero in on one because the way I refer to it, kind of that inertia and in getting started with content, I call it fear of the blinking cursor. So when you're staring at a blank page, it's almost impossible to hand it off to someone and say, hey, create content. You have to walk them through the process or have some tools to do that. And I'm curious, since you guys are 80,000 plus people, 30 plus billion dollars, what tools do you use to assist you with your content marketing and the creation process? Well, let's see here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pausing for a moment because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about strategic tools, you know, versus research versus technology. You know, there's because there are many kind of classes of tools that support uh, content. So, I mean, you have your your technologies you know, which uh, may, you know, optimize production management, you know what I mean? So you have uh, tools that help with planning and production that um, might, for example, contain customer persona information and that type of thing. So, you know, we have these classes of, of content marketing tools that support production where people can manage their persona information and that type of thing you know, the, the compendiums, the composts, the, all of that kind of thing. And, um, you know, this, this new kind of breed of tools, one of the things I like about these breeds of tools for facilitating that blank page bit is that they, they help to provide information about the persona they're writing for directly in the tool they're using to produce. And very often the strategic inputs um, about people, for example, persona documents and customer lifecycle information and all that type of thing, tend to, you know, be on some PDF or some poster or something somewhere on somebody's hard drive and that type of thing. Um, but really getting it sort of baked in, that information baked into the tools that people use and leveraging technology, uh, leveraging tagging and, and all the sorts of things we can do to help shorten that gap between that um, inspirational, motivational, and targeting type of information um, um, is a helpful thing. Another another thing that is helping with uh, technology is in tools that help you find currently existing content that relates to what you're writing about. And these same tools do some of that kind of stuff. And that's 
that's really important because the content that we produce, I mean, and all of us who live in the world of content are endlessly familiar with this pain. You know, the content we produce disappears into a void once it's done. You know, it's, it's, it's in our digital asset management systems. It's in spreadsheets and documents or God knows where out on the Internet and all that. And you really need metadata and tagging and, you know, for retrievability. And you need all of that stuff to help ensure that you can ever find that content again. But even if you have those tags that where you can click on links, you know, that are topical or whatever to help retrieve content, that's a very manual and a very, you know, sort of push thing that a person has to do to find that stuff. One of the things that I like about uh, technologies and I think are kind of the ways to go is how is it that we're able to dynamically uh, pull content and pull relevant information to the creator at the time they're creating. And that's another thing. So when you build your repositories, um, you know, you can look into the things that currently exist so that you can find research that can enhance and help move things forward or using curation tools, you know, curation engines and that type of thing to, you know, help find stuff that's related to the, uh, to the topics that you, that you write about. Um, another thing is with the, the really low cost kinds of, you know, there's the, the cost to find people to start filling a blank page and in some cases for you is really going down. So, you know, there's more and more of these kind of journalist network uh, kinds of companies and whatnot, you know, who are connecting to low-cost content producers. So one of the things that I recommend is, you know, as uh, the businesses develop their topics and all of that type of thing to potentially leverage some of the lower-cost writers um, Maybe maybe some of the lower cost writers will produce fantastic content. Maybe they won't. Um, you know, there's a challenge in finding talent, and that's true really whether you're paying an extraordinarily expensive agency or whether you're paying, you know, people who are charging you a hundred bucks an article or something like that. I mean, or or thirty dollars an article. You know, you can find garbage and gold in all of these different types of business, regardless of price. But um, um, to try, you know, going with some of the low cost providers is really helpful because you can, you know, you can test out the same concept on three different writers in some of these lower cost uh, um, freelance writing networks. Um, for a, for even try it out on the same article out on three people, sometimes for a fraction of the cost of what some of our divisions may have been paying an agency for. And so because of that cost, you can get blank pages filled faster. And maybe that content that comes in might not quite be as awesome as you want. And that's where you have your A-game writers really clean it up and make it better. But um, leveraging some of that kind of lower cost can be really helpful for <clears throat> getting an initial sort of pile of stuff in that now you've got a lot of raw material that you can shape and play with. And so we've been doing some things like that, which has been helpful. Um, those are a few examples. Great stuff there. And I wanted to give you a high five when you mentioned compendium, since that's how I joined Oracle marketing cloud. I don't think that quite works over a podcast though. So I refrained, but another amazing tool for content creation is proof HQ, which they help make the podcast happen. So one of the trickiest parts of content creation is approval and edits. We all deal with different people giving us feedback, make the logo bigger. Is this the best photo we have? Well, you can kill all that drama by using Proof HQ. It's a slick web-based system that allows everyone on your team to instantly collaborate on content executions. You can work together seamlessly on blog posts, ebooks, slide shares, infographics, and more. You'll be more productive and more creative when you use Proof HQ. Check it out at bit.ly slash Proof HQ. And Amber, I think you had a fun question for Carlos to wrap things up. 
I do. And this is one that we ask of all of our guests, Carlos, so bear with us here. But um, you obviously had this incredible journey from, uh, you know, agency and customer experience and all that stuff through content. But when you were a kid, what did you really want to be when you grew up? Hmm. Let's see. Um, well, well, I, the I, want, I wanted to be a lot of things, but but one of the real big ones was an Egyptologist. I wanted to be, you know, an Egyptologist or an archaeologist, you know, discovering, you know, buried uh, miracles of past civilizations and and that type of thing. I um I had the good fortune of of kind of growing up in the, in a science museum when I was a kid. My my mother is, I guess I would call her an anthropologist anthropologist of craft. And she worked at the Science Museum in Minnesota. I'm, I'm from Minnesota, that's where I live. And um, so, was, and she worked there at night. And so I was always down there as a kid, and you know, on the Hall of Anthropology, and surrounded by um, all this cultural stuff. So that was a really huge input for me. And I started uh, volunteering as a kid, working with the mummy, explaining um, mummification and funerary archaeology to people who who came in. So my my big fantasy for a long time was to um, to, to be an Egyptologist, and, and that was when Indiana, when uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, the the first one, and Indiana Jones was this sexy guy with a bullwhip swinging around, you know, um, um, it, it, you know, uncovering uh, uh, things from from past civilizations and, and that type of thing. And, and I don't know, maybe that was a bit romanticized version of what uh, archaeologists really do, but um, but I think that was uh, probably one of the bigger ones. <laughs> I love it, sexy guy with a bullwhip. I'll remember that. Well, thanks so much for you guys for joining us for this episode of Content Pros, and thanks especially to Carlos Abler from 3M for joining us today. We would love for you to head over to iTunes, give us a review, subscribe, spread the word, tell your friends to come and give us a listen. Special thanks to our guests today. Check out everything that they're doing that's cool over at 3M.com, and check out more episodes of Content Pros at contentprospodcast.com. I'm Amber Naslin from Sysimos. My co-host is Chris Moody from Oracle Marketing Cloud, and we will look forward to seeing you next time on Content Pros. Thanks for tuning in to Content Pros. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app. Go to contentprospodcast.com for a complete show archive and greatest hits. Content Pros is sponsored by Oracle Marketing Cloud, Sysimos, Proof HQ, and Inbound Rider and is produced by Convince and Convert. Find more great shows like Content Pros at marketingpodcast.com, the first search engine for marketing podcasts.